The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture today is from John 16, verses 5 through 14, or 4 through 14. But I have said these things to you, that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of, of this world is judged. I, have said many, I, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now, bear them now, sorry. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you all things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thanks, John. You guys can have a seat. Hey, nice shirt, by the way. Looks like we shop at the same places. I would encourage you to turn to John 16. We're going to be continuing in the Upper Room Discourse. I've been holding off saying anything because in one sense it's almost like too ironic. But preaching through the Upper Room Discourse, which is a, a, a conversation about somebody departing, while at the same time being in a station of life where you're departing something, is super ironic. And I know some of you have come up to me in, in some past sermons and are just like, holy cow, that like just there's a tension here. So I'll, I'll just kind of speak about the elephant in the room. This, this is my last Sunday being here as, as a senior pastor. If you're new, I see some new faces around the room. Welcome. What an interesting Sunday to show up to, to a church at. But in, in one sense, as I've been preaching through the Upper Room Discourse and even we're continuing, I've kind of been grateful for, in one sense, the station of life that I'm in ha looking at this passage. Because this passage is one that, as we've brought up, has, has brought up just a lot of vulnerability and fear and wonder and questions of like what's going on and not to say that my situation you know can, can, it pales in comparison to anything that's going on here but i've been so grateful for just being able to maybe understand the emotions behind it just a little bit better um and so i just want to kind of state that publicly as i kind of acknowledge that this is my last sermon that um even in this sense it's going to be some kind of an ironic text if you will but as I've been looking at this and as we discuss kind of what's going to be the pathway to this last Sunday and, and really just kind of consider it, should I do some series or should I have something else or should I just have kind of a one-off sermon now, I realize that what we've always done from this pulpit and what is most important for a job of a pastor is to proclaim the word of God. And so I'm excited that I get to just preach the next text and then I do believe somebody is picking up next week when John 16, where we left off, and that's the role of the pastor, and so I'm excited that we get to do that today. And this text is an interesting one, John 16, 5 through 4 through 15. 
It's an interesting one because it contains some rather difficult aspects. There's some confusing language that's used here. There's some interesting statements that we get to unpack. And there's even some competing interpretations that we're going to have to deal with. But I have found it just a joy as I've been able to study this text this week to just be reminded of the beauty and the power of the message that we hold in our lungs and just the beauty and the message and the power that Christ was proclaiming to his disciples in the upper room. So I, I, I just want to kind of catch some people up. If, as I said, there's some new faces around the room. So just acknowledge that may, you might be joining us for the first time. Jesus's heart in the upper room discourse is to prepare his disciples for his departure. He wanted to make sure that they knew what was coming. He wanted to make sure that they weren't going to be caught off guard. We saw this all the way back at the beginning in 14, but we can even see it at the very first verse that we read here. You know, 16, 4. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember what I have told you. You see, Jesus is making sure that he prepares his disciples well, and the first thing that he can do in that preparation process is make sure that they're not caught off guard. I don't know about, I don't know about you, but I hate scary movies. Like, I think it's absurd to pay money at times to go sit in a dark theater to be scared. I mean, maybe it's just there's enough drama in my own life that I'm like, no, nah, I don't need any more drama. I mean, and I hate the worst type of scary movies are the jump scenes, right? When like everyone's sitting there and the guy pops out or the enemy all of a sudden shows up. Like, I hate them so much. This might like blow your mind. I know people, I've told this to other people and they don't understand it. Before I go see one of these movies that I think there's going to be some like super intense scene in, I'll Google the scene so that I'm not caught off guard by it. Because the last thing I want to do is be sitting there going, where's the guy going to pop up? Because I hate that. In some respects, that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't want his disciples to be caught off guard. Like last week that we looked at it, the first three verses of 16. Like when they're kicked out of the synagogues for believing in Jesus, which was the center of their world. When they thought of like how my world has to operate, they're going, I have got to be in the synagogue. That was, that, that was their, 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 their culture. That was their community. That was everything. I mean, that was like the center of it. They could not imagine a life that they weren't, did not have access to the synagogue. And yet Jesus knows, listen, they're going to hate you so much because they hated me that they're not going to allow you in the synagogue. So he, again, is just preparing them for these moments when it's like, listen, when this happens to you, it's not off the rails. When this happens to you, life will be okay. When, when people start to hate you, they're, they're only hating you because they hated me. Again, this is why he says in John 16, 1, I've said all these things to you so that you would keep from falling away. And so as we get to continue in this discourse, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, we get this section here. It's the last section where the Holy Spirit is going to be talked about. I don't know about you, but if I was kind of writing the upper room discourse in, in let's say, a systematic fashion, if I was writing it so that I could kind of break out a sermon series well, I would have put all of the sections of the Holy Spirit together in one. Because I feel like I am just keep constantly coming back to this, and yet he constantly changes his focus to other things. And I think what that sp speaks to us is the Holy Spirit is central to our life. And without him, without acknowledging him, without understanding him, without understanding just the power that he has, we are going to be weak as believers. And so he returns again to the Holy Spirit. This is going to be the last time that he speaks about it in the upper room discourse. And immediately we get to a difficult passage. 
because it seems like Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Look at 16.5. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? Now, if there's any lawyers in the room, they probably stand up and go, excuse me. They did ask you where you were going. On two different occasions, they asked you where you were going. The very first thing they said was, where are you going? We can see this in, in John uh, 13, 36. Peter asks, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Very clearly, right? I mean, Jesus just said in 16.5, no one asked where I'm going. Peter just said in 13.36, Lord, where are you going? I mean, it's an exact quote. Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Then just a few short verses later in John 14, Thomas asks, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what does Jesus mean here? That no one asked him where he's going. Seems like it's a contradiction, right? Seems like there's some miscommunication here. Did Jesus just make a mistake? That's a problem if he did. That's a problem if he's not thinking back to what his disciples said. I mean, I know it's been weeks and weeks and weeks as we've been studying this and kind of in, in a series of Sundays. But, like, they just said that hours ago. Like, at the beginning of the upper room discourse, this is where Thomas is like, where are you going? And now Jesus is saying, you've never asked me where I'm going. Well, here's, again, some difficult text that we have to interpret. Here's kind of how people have answered this supposed contradiction. The first thing they say is that there's an error in, error in the text. That as it, as it was translated, somebody put this verse in there, somebody put this statement in there, but Jesus never said it at all. I mean, because clearly it can't be right that, because they did ask where he was going. The second kind of option that people have given to, to again, to kind of understand and get past this supposed contradiction is that there's an error in the translation, that the translators are using an overly mechanical approach to the text. It's a little bit of a possibility. But I would agree with a third kind of response to it. I didn't make this up. This is what the commentators said, that there's no contradiction at all. Now you might be going, Ryan, black and white, both places, how it seems that there's a contradiction. I think there's no contradiction at all because Jesus is doing what he always does. He's speaking to the heart, not to the words. You see, look again at the two questions that Peter and Thomas asked. Peter and Thomas did ask, where are you going? But the heart of their question wasn't where, but why. Why, Lord, are you leaving us? I mean, especially Thomas's answers. Why, Lord, are you leaving us and I'm going with you? I'm not going to accept that you're leaving me. I'm coming with you. Just imagine, parents or kids, if you can think back to this, when you drop your kids off in children's church or when you leave your kids to go on a date with your spouse and there's a babysitter there. At times, you can go through this process where your child will be crying and screaming and holding onto your leg. And what's the question that they ask you? Where are you going? Well, they don't really want to hear that you're going on a date and do a movie and do a restaurant and blah, 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 blah. They don't want to hear where I'm going to sit in a room and hear a pastor. No, the heart behind their question is, why are you leaving me here? I don't like you separating yourself from me. I think that's what Jesus is speaking to here. Their first questions weren't questions about where, physically where. The questions were about why. Why are you leaving us? Why are you departing? Why are you going from here? 
But Jesus, in this statement, is actually wanting them to think about where. About the actual location. Because the location that where Jesus is going is so amazing and so beautiful and so profound that who could possibly complain that he's going to the Father? Jesus knows, I'm leaving you for a better place, but none of you asked me about that better place. Like, can you imagine if you're looking at your friend and, and, and your friend has this amazing opportunity to go somewhere, to, to move, and that does mean that they have to leave you. That means that they have to leave this community, but they got their dream job. They're able to build their dream house. They're able to go live on some travel, whatever that is, where they're like, this, that location is so amazing. I have to go there. Who are we to say, no, you shouldn't take advantage of that opportunity? Like Jesus is saying, none of you considered the location that I am going. And that location that he is going is more profound, more beautiful, more amazing than anything that could possibly happen on this earth. You see, the disciples couldn't consider where he was going because the pain of the moment was so great. They couldn't see that the pain of the moment was worth going to that future glory is all they saw was the pain of the moment. And that pain, that, that pain was a real pain. I mean, we're gonna, as you guys continue in this book, you're gonna see Jesus having some really struggling moments of pain. And I mean, not only the crucifixion, but we can see in the garden. I mean, he sees that that is a very painful process to get from where he is today to where he will be sitting beside the Father. But what he knows is that the future glory is worth the present pain. It's just like childbirth. You're going to see this illustration next week as you look at it. He, he uses it in verse 21. It's like childbirth. I mean, moms, I'm a wimp. Couldn't go through any of that. Like, I've seen those, like, electrode things that people put on. I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. I'm not. You can have all the credit in the world. Like, you, 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 I, don't, I don't understand in one sense, like you guys are, are amazing in that way because you go through that pain, but you go through that pain because you know the joy of holding that child in your hands. And there you go. And then you do it again and again and again and some again and again and again. But you go through that pain. Why? Because you recognize that the pain is momentary. But the glory, the joy, the amazement of holding that child is forever. Same way Jesus looks at his disciples and he can say, listen, I understand that my leaving is painful. But you have to acknowledge the, the, the glory, the joy, the, the, the amazement of what this process will bring. Which carries us along. Because Jesus knows why he's leaving. And he knows that if he does not leave, then the joy and the hope and the peace and the assurance that we have in, in him is lost. Because why is he leaving? He's leaving for two reasons. He's leaving first to complete the work that he started. If he does not go away, he does not complete the work. And second, he's leaving so that he can be at the Father's right hand. But here's what's interesting. I'm just going to go on a brief side note, rabbit trail. Both of those realities are amazing. That he gets to complete the work that the Father sent him for. And that he gets to be at the Father's right hand. But the sadness... 
and the hardship and the scariness and even the grief that his departure produces is not lost on Jesus. One of the things that I have so greatly appreciated as, as we've gotten to look at Christ in this book of John is how he acknowledges the motion and the sorrows of the individuals that he comes in contact with. So easy for us in our life to just be, uh, as, as one author states it, kind of walking around as just heads on sticks. Everything is just mental. Everything is knowledge. Everything is, is logical. Everything is just um, you know, this, this, this rational idea of just it's more knowledge. Jesus didn't view humans as just heads on sticks. He understood there was knowledge. He definitely did that. He definitely taught us. That's why we have the word. But he understood that there's emotion, that there's feelings, that there's a body that's connected to that head. And he speaks not only to our mind and gives us truth, but he speaks to our hearts and he speaks to our emotions. He recognizes the grief that his leaving produces. I mean, this is in six. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He could have sat down and said, class, here's what you need to know. Number one, number two, number three. He could have just gone through this, like, this, this, this you know, uh, theological treatise of why he needed to go, but he doesn't. He looks at them and says, I know that you're going to struggle with this. But trust me, it's worth it. He always does that. You're going to see this next week, verses 20 through 22. Look at and, and, and picture this fact that like there is sorrow, there is lament, there is grief, there is pain. But there's joy on the other side of that. So often in our life, we can be so stuck in that grief, in that sorrow, not wanting to go through that pain that we don't acknowledge that the Lord uses pain. The Lord redeems pain. The Lord takes these moments where we think this can't possibly be God's way of doing things. This can't possibly be the right thing. Like the cross, the disciples standing, staring at their Savior on the cross, thinking all is lost. Peter blowing it with Three times before the rooster crows denying Christ after he saw all the things that he saw three and a half years of his ministry. He comes back at the very end and redeems that. This is what Christ does. He acknowledges the pain and the sorrow, but at the same time he acknowledges there's something better coming. I don't think we always look at our pain that way. Because we have one of two ways. We either think about it theologically and so rationally that we don't acknowledge the suffering and sorrows that's going in our heart or we're so stuck in the sorrows and the, and, 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 and the grief and the pain that we can't acknowledge that God is doing something with it. Christ doesn't fit into either of those paradigms. Christ can say, I know this is hurting you and it's for your benefit. Side note, over. And he's, I, I guess as, as I, I say that because Look at his wording as this text continues. John 16, 7. This is the heart of the passage, I'll just tell you, in this section. And it's one of these things that, again, you read it, and from a rational standpoint, you go, what? But it's, it's beautiful. It says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is... To your advantage 
that I go away. Again, just try to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. What they've been calling people to is Christ. Come follow me. Come follow him. You go all the way back to the beginning. John chapter 1. What do you seek? What are you doing? As he's calling his disciples. And what's he say? Follow me and you will see. Now Jesus is saying it is to your advantage that I go. So I want to unpack that. Because it would seem that what Jesus is saying. Because that actually is what he's saying. That Jesus is saying if I don't go. It will be a detriment to you. It will be weakness for you. It will be the wrong thing for you. So we can ask the question, if Jesus doesn't go, what happens? And what happens is he doesn't finish his job. So let's just for a moment kind of consider a question. Maybe if we got to rewrite the gospel story, we like to do that often in our own lives, right? We'd say, this is not what I like. This is not what I want to do. Let me rewrite this. I'm going to take charge. Why can't we have both? Why couldn't it be an advantage that Jesus stays and it's, and it's an advantage, if, as we read the text, that the Holy Spirit comes? Why can't we have both of those realities at the same time, right? We like to have all things. Why can't Jesus be present and at the same time the Holy Spirit be given? Why can't Jesus stay and we also have the gifts of the Spirit? The answer is, is that because Jesus would not be doing and finishing the work that he set out to accomplish. Think about this. Jesus came to solve the problem of our sin. That's why he came. That's the center of the reason that he was brought on earth. He came to reconcile us to God. Because we have a problem. Humanity had a problem. All the way from Genesis 3.15 had a problem. That problem was sin. And God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. And prior to Christ's coming, yes, there was grace there, and, and, and the Lord graciously, you know, a, a, a allowed us to have a relationship with him, but not one that we have now. No, the one that we, the relationship that we had with God then was one where there were mediators in between us and God. There were steps in between us and God. There were tabernacles. There was curtains. There was sacrifices. There was rules. There was regulations. We knew back then that we could not stand in the presence of God. In fact, every single story that we see in the Bible of a human standing in the presence of God, what do they do? They fall flat on their face because they realize, I do not belong here. But Jesus came to do the work necessary for us to belong in God's presence. That's why th those words that are so important at the end of John, it is finished. What he is saying is it is finished. You are now able to be in the presence of God. He reconciled us to the Father. Imagine that. I know you're a sinner. I know that you still sin. But you are at the same time simultaneously a saint. Reconciled to God. Justified. Declared righteous. And a sinner. So let's just consider when Jesus is having all of this Holy Spirit language, what is he saying is going to happen? He's saying that the Holy Spirit, a member of the Godhead, somebody who is being sent by the Father to us, is going to indwell us. 
come into us, be connected with us. We can't get away from that. God is in you, indwelled in you. And I know this blows our mind in the same way the Trinity does because how in the world does this work? Because God is outside of us, but he's in you. And if Christ did not leave us, if he did not go to the cross and die, if he did not rise again, if he's not sitting at the right hand of the Father as, as our mediator, Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelling you would be impossible. And so what Jesus is saying is, it's my, it is to your advantage that I am going because when I go and I say that it is finished and I, and, and, and I give you the Holy Spirit, you will be intimately connected to me in a way that otherwise would be impossible. Because it's not until I die on the cross for your sins and declare you righteous that you can be that connected to me. That's that's what's behind here. It goes, listen, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, listen, they don't see this stuff at the time. It's all they say is, but Jesus, stay here. Why are you leaving us? But he knows in his perfect plan, this is what has to happen. So we get to jump into what does the Holy Spirit do? What are the actions of the Holy Spirit? What's he going to do when he indwells you and he comes down to this earth? That's in this next section that we see, verses 8 through 11. Either I'm animated or it's hot in here. But I'm... And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This is where, as I said, we have to unpack some difficult statements. Well, this one, we have to unpack some competing interpretations and some interesting statements. I want to start with the interesting statement and really looking at, at, at some language here. I want to briefly get into the grammar. Don't fall asleep on me. This, this uh, word here for convict, this verb, can be translated in multiple ways. Maybe your Bible has a different word in it. There's kind of three main ways that, that this verb is translated. First is to expose. Second is to convince, and then third is to convict. I'm using the ESV. The ESV chose to convict as, you know, the best possible translation. But every time, regardless if it's exposed, convinced, or convict, every time this verb is used, it's to describe someone who is being shown their sin and called repentance, and called to repentance. Every time that this word in the New Testament is brought up, it is to call somebody to repentance over their sin. And so the idea here is this exposure or convincing or convicting, is, it's all wrapped up here, that the Holy Spirit is going to pro come and proclaim light into darkness. He's going to do that by exposing the world of their evil deeds. He's going to do that by convincing the world that Jesus is better. Or he's going to come and do that by convicting the world of its sin. And he does that through three specific declarations. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But these three realities, it's not that he is calling them in sin, though he is, and it's not that he is proclaiming righteousness to him, though he is, and it's not that he's proclaiming judgment upon them, though he also is. Rather, what he is saying is he's speaking to those three realities that the world has defined and is saying, you're wrong. See, think for a minute. The world has made a mockery of these three realities. The world has twisted what it calls sin. The world has said one thing is righteous, while the godly manner of being righteous is unrighteous. The world 
wrongly and poorly judges everyone. I mean, just sin, just walk through this. The idea of black and white sin that is defined and directed by the Father from the Word of God has been exchanged for this reality that sin is whatever makes us and makes the world feel good to call it sin. Like, what, what the world calls as sin is this kind of ever-changing moffat of like, okay, what, what it wants to view as sin. It doesn't have this black and white. It doesn't have this, you know, ob- objective standard that the Bible has. Well, what does the Holy Spirit come in and do? It declares the objective standard of the Word of God. It says God gets to pick what sin is, not the world. Yes, I know that that might make you feel good, but guess what? The creator of the universe says that that thing that makes you feel good actually is sin. And so the Holy Spirit is going to come in and proclaim a new paradigm for what sin is. Same thing for righteousness. The world holds to a standard of righteousness that is often at odds with God. I mean, just think about if if you were to continue to read the Bible in chronological fashion, very quickly you're going to meet a man by the name of Saul, who's later turned to Paul who's walking around killing Christians. And he's killing Christians under the guise of, I am righteous. I am doing the work of God. This is what God desires for me to do. I'm holding up these external standards because they hold to God's law. He was killing Christians, persecuting Christians, because he thought this is the righteous thing to do. We mess up what righteousness is so easy. We want to apply our own standards and our own ideas of what, of what righteousness is and what the Holy Spirit is going to come and do is convict us of what actual righteousness looks like. Because here's the thing about the world's righteousness. It's also the same thing with sin and judgment. It's this ever-changing standard. Wait a minute, and what is righteous will be something different. But rather, the Holy Spirit coming from God is proclaiming to the world, listen, this is what the Father declares to be righteousness and judgment. The world since the fall has twisted and turned what was wrong into right since the fall. I mean, this is the first, first sin, first lie. Satan going to Eve. That's not what God meant by that. You shouldn't have to follow that. Isn't that what our world does? Is it follows the course of the power, the course of their own understanding and mind? It says, that's, that sinful thing over there actually is right. And then it judges us when we follow the standard of God. That's what the Holy Spirit's coming to do. He's coming to renew what was lost in the fall. He's coming to declare truth to falsehood. He's coming to proclaim light in the darkness. He's coming to speak grace to the broken. As we move on, we get the third and final discrepancy in this passage. One that the commentators like to needle over. Pages from the commentaries were written to this. When does all this take place? I want to gloss over this briefly because, you know, it'll probably get us a little off track here. When does the Holy Spirit come? When does he proclaim sin and righteousness and judgment upon the world? When does he convict the world of those things? Well, there's some believe that this took place at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given directly. And if you went and read Acts 
2, you could see that that's exactly what happened kind of in the immediate. And they would say that these verses are complete at Pentecost. Well, there's others, and I kind of follow in the same track, that this is what the Holy Spirit does constantly. Not only at Pentecost, but in our life as well. See, here's the struggle of the Christian life. It's we have, these, we have opportunities to come in like on a Sunday like this and be reminded of the truth of God's word. We have opportunities to, to, to fellowship with like-minded believers who can appropriately hold us accountable for how we live. Appropriately remind us that's not how God desired us to live. That's not how God created us to live. That's not how God desires us to, to live. But then we can go out into the world Monday through Saturday in a world that's proclaiming a gospel, a a salvation message that is contrary to the word of God. And it it can confuse us. Because the world says you're going to be judged by the works of your own hands. The world says you're going to find your identity in what you do and how you do it. Christ says you're going to be judged based upon the works of Christ's perfect life. And you find your Identity, not in what you do and how you do it, but in who Christ has declared you to be a child of God and how Christ made you to be in his image of God. And so our identity is not found in what we do. It's found in who we are. And who are we? We are children of God. Well, the Holy Spirit walks with us and dwells us, lives our life with us and reminds us of those things on a continual basis, not only on Sunday morning in this space when collectively we can hear each other's voices proclaim that, but also Monday through Saturday as we're living our life, walking in this dark world, trying to push back the darkness. And that's what we see in the last section. Because he reminds them that this Holy Spirit is their guide and friend. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And I'm just imagine that hearing that after all that you have been heard, all that they have heard, all of the like life transforming work that has been told. And then you're like, you have more? I'm not so sure I can handle more. He knew they couldn't handle more. That's why he didn't say it then. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You know, I used this illustration last week, but I'll just kind of bring it to mind. How as a parent do we possibly prepare our kids for the stuff that the world is going to throw at them? That's what we wrestle with, right, as parents? What, what lessons, what conversations, what actions, what, what things do I need to, you know, try to give our, my child before they leave the house? It's impossible. It's impossible to adequately prepare them for all that life is going to throw at them. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing. You don't need to memorize and um, go to school in order to be prepared for life. No, what you need to do is trust in the guide and the friend that you have, that is the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that it's not a matter of downloading and memorizing all the necessary details. Rather, what he is calling his disciples to and what he's calling you to today is to make sure that we're constantly looking at the one who will guide us through life. That's really what these verses are talking about. 
when the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and declare it to you, the things that are to come. So I have a question, and I guess it's going to be my last question that I asked you, because we're at the end of the sermon. It's my last sermon here. Are you listening to that voice? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you listening to that guide and that friend? Are you listening to that person who is sent to convict you of sin, to convict you of your self-righteousness, to convict you of your poor judgment? Are you living your life with the recognition that the Holy Spirit is in you? And I know as good Christians who are cessationists that we don't want to fall into you know certain camps we can be kind of nervous by that but listen you have somebody god the holy spirit that is in you sent for you to walk with you if you're waiting and trusting on somebody else if you're wondering as life blows up around you who what's happening i don't have a friend i don't have an advocate i don't have a counselor I don't have a comforter. That's why Jesus has said you have all of those things. And he lives in you. And so I would encourage you today that as you walk through life, as you're dealing with difficult moments, that you pay attention to the advocate that Christ offered us from the Father. You know, I know that there's many scary moments in life. I'm in the middle of one. I'll tell you that. I have no idea what life looks like on the other side of this. But I do know that I have an advocate, that I have a counselor, that I have a comforter, that I have somebody with me, guiding me, protecting me, holding me fast, that will make sure that my foot is not going to slip and now let's kind of sum all of this up if i can maybe not touch on one verse but kind of all things it's so easy for me to think that he has to guide me in the way that i want him to guide me that he has to guide me in order for me to feel good it's so easy for me to think i don't want to go through the path of pain i only want to go through the path of joy i don't want to have to go into those scary moments lord because they're scary it's really easy for me to think and me to set up this expectation of, I don't like change, so don't make me change. I don't want to trust because it's scary to trust, so don't make me trust. And yet what I know is that on the other side of all of that, the pain and the wonder and the struggle and all of that, I'm going to trust that God will take care of me. I'm going to trust that God will take care of you. So, whether it's the church situation or not this morning, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I have no idea what's on the other side of this door. But listen, here's what we do know. God's taking care of you. God is with you. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. He is there. And so, as we're walking through life, not... Not, not only as we walk through life and, and come into these Sunday mornings, but are you paying attention to the helper that is your constant reminder of what, as we go back to the text, of the things of Christ? 
in those things of Christ you need, not just on Sunday morning. You need it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday as well. I think that's probably the best ending I could possibly give to this. I'm going to pray and we can take the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the knowledge that we have a protector and a guide and an advocate and a comforter. Lord, keep our eyes on him. Keep our eyes on you. Lord, help us not to fall into the, the, the trap of thinking that we can do it on our own or worse, that we can do it as the world tells us to do it. Lord, help us to acknowledge that our hope does not come from the works of our own hands, that our identity does not come from what we do, but our hope and our identity comes from you. So even now as we approach this table, that it declares to us that we are good, not because of the works of our own hands, but because of Christ. Lord, help us to, tr to trust and rest in that this morning. In your son's name. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.